Hey, everybody. Thanks for joining us here on Off the Couch on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Matt Mitchell, the running editor at Blister, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Okay. On the show this week is Barney Mann, though many probably know him better by his trail name, Scout. Barney is considered one of thru-hiking's elder statesmen, so to speak, someone National Geographic has called arguably the Dean of America's Long Distance Trails. I had him on to talk about our shared connections to the Pacific Crest Trail, the excellent book he wrote about his own thru-hike, Journeys North, as well as the work he does with his wife Sandy to support the thru-hiking community, which has included hosting over 7,000 hikers to date at their home in San Diego each spring. This conversation is one that has really stuck with me, and you'll hear a couple of times in here where I'm just so caught up in one of Barney's stories that I need a second. But before I bring Barney on, I want to take a quick minute to remind you guys about our annual Blister Summit, which is right around the corner. From February 12th through the 16th, we'll be hosting a series of summit events in our hometown of Mount Crested Butte, Colorado. Expect a bunch of on-snow activities and demo opportunities from brands like Blizzard, DPS, and Nordica, to name just a few. Panel sessions with company founders and professional athletes, nightly gear giveaways, and the chance to pick the brains of Blister reviewers like myself, as well as a whole lot more. We take a ton of pride in making our Blister Summit a premium event for skiers and riders of all levels, and this year is no exception. For more info on what to expect and how to register, check out the link in the show notes. Okay, let's get right into my conversation with Barney. Barney, welcome to the show. Real pleasure, Matt. Real pleasure to be here with you. So I think a good place to start is by asking you what your trail name is and how you got it, because I think that might be a good introduction to folks that might not be super familiar with uh, through hiking culture. Right. So first of all, what the heck is a trail name? <laughs> Why do we do it? And I like to say, if you were suddenly dropped in Narnia or in Hogwarts, would you, st- would you really still want to be Bill or Matt? And the answer is no. So we here in this uh, long distance hiking world, we literally, we choose to drop ourselves into another land entirely, into a land of wilderness, to land where the 15, 20, 30 pounds, whatever is in the back, that's our home. That's my entire wardrobe. And as part of that, a tradition developed on the Appalachian Trail of trail names. And usually you get one, it's not say, okay, I'm going to choose my own trail trail name. And my wife did, and her trail name is Frodo. Uh, uh, she was hoping she might get a trail name such as Intrepid or Dauntless, but it doesn't happen that way. Trail names, you usually, you may do something stupid, you have a personal trait, you wear something dumb, and all of a sudden someone blurts out, and that's your trail name. You, um, a guy on day four of the PCT sprayed himself accidentally with a, with a, a, a pepper spray. And I know him to this day as Pepper. Give me a break. And just one more um burly guy you know a bit like you matt burly guy tough out there on day four or five uh happens to be a concert cellist which is neither here nor there actually was first chair portland symphony and he's sitting one day uh so he's very active right and left lane person and he's sitting one day at break with some other new trail friends you know best buddies after three four days and he begins the sentence with wouldn't it be awful if you got the trail name of 
And at this point, the creative side of his brain kicks in and the other side's still in break. Wouldn't it be awful if you got a trail name like Cuddles? And I still know him as Cuddles this day. So Scout, how did I get Scout? 2003, my wife and I, uh, Standy or her trail name's Frodo, we did the John Muir Trail, 211 miles, to see if we would still come off it, still wanting to do this crazy thing through hiking, to actually consider uh, hiking 2,650 miles on the Pacific Crest Trail. Uh, we're out there the first day and think, wow, this is, you know, this is the longest uh, backpack we've ever done. We've done a lot of backpacking, but never, never really more than a week or 10 days at most. First day, we're going from Yosemite South, and you often will climb Half Dome. It's a little bit out of the way, but you do. And a young man attached himself to us like glue. He just graduated high school. He's obviously a little bit lonely, and the two of us look like parental types. We've been you know, 25 years married at that time or so. After three hours of conversation, I hear this question behind me. And the question was, what's the most important thing you've done in your life? Excuse me. <laughs> but we're now you know, we're on the trail, and we all talk to each other differently. And at that point in time, I had a small handful of truthful answers to that question. One would be, I raised three pretty neat kids already. Another would be, I've been married uh, for 25 years to my wife. But the answer that popped out of my mouth in that instant was, for five years, I was scoutmaster of a very large Boy Scout troop. And Matt, Scoutmaster's kind of pretentious. And more importantly, the book we had torn up to read. And yes, folks, back in the day before uh, uh, before smartphones, we would take a book, tear it up into maybe 100-page sections, and we'd ship the rest ahead, and I'd carry a much lighter 100 pages on trail. The book we had done that with was To Kill a Mockingbird. And I see you nodding your head, even if the audience can't see it. And yes, who would not want to be named after nine-year-old, the hero, Scout Finch? And that's how Scout happened. Do you think that is still the answer um, to that question he posed in terms of like, what's the most important thing you've done in your life? I made a guy cry at a board meeting of the Pacific Crest Trail Association for having told that story. I'd served in the board nine years at that time. This is 2017, January before I set out to through hike the Continental Divide Trail. I was charming off the board. I'd been, um, I had the honor and privilege of serving as their board chair three years. And I knew a lot of people. And I told them my name story at the very beginning. I said, indulge me. I want you to tell you my trail name story. And then I talked about some other things, uh, um, um, some legacies I thought it left. But then here's how I finished. And I finished with, Remember my trail name story I told you? And if that same question came up today, what's the most important thing you've done in your life? I'd have to add one to it. And that would be my time serving on the board of the Pacific Crest Trail Association. Less than two weeks ago, I told, I did the same thing again. It's a great way of doing it. Look, and I say, uh, I turned out after serving on the board of the Continental Vi Trail Coalition. And I told the same story and I said the same answer. Uh, today, I might add one or two more, probably two more. I would add, um, and it's the best thing I've done in my life, not because it was best for other people, though it may be, but really best for me. 
Uh, I'm grandfather to two to two young boys now, and that qualifies in that category. And then the other thing, well, actually, no, two boys. You got, you got me thinking, Mister. Good questions. Uh, the other two are uh, the last twelve years. Myself, three point oh. Um, Scout 1.0 was a summer camp director. Give me a break. And then 2.0 for 25 years, I was an attorney here in town. Uh, but 3.0, last 12 years, I've been an author, a writer. I've had three books out. I know we'll talk about at least one of them a little bit later. But Lifetime Dream. Um, but the, um, the last one is um, we got to be trail angels here in San Diego, my wife and I. Over since 2006, we've had uh, uh, every month and a half, two months in springtime when people are starting Pacific Crest Trail, we've hosted starting hikers one, two, three nights uh, and taken them out uh, every morning. And that total is now over 7,000 people. Incredible. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's a lot better answer than how I got my trail name, which was Rattlesnake. And uh, I got oh, it. Tell me. Oh, man. Uh, yeah, I, I guess I haven't told this story before. Um, so early on in my my through hike of the PCT in 2018, uh, I was using what most people at that time were using uh, to filter water, which was a Sawyer squeeze, which is this device that uh, you can screw onto the top of a generic smart water bottle and uh, push water through um, and it'll, you know, detoxify it. And uh, I didn't reverse filter mine. So the flow rate really started to slow uh, right in the middle of the desert section. And I was trying to do some big miles just to like get through the desert. Um, I love the desert, but, uh, you know, I wanted to get to the Sierra. So I wasn't really drinking enough water at the time and found myself pretty dehydrated and ended up taking uh, a trail nap uh, in the middle of the day and um, woke up to this woman, this other hiker who had uh, rounded the corner of the trail and she she was screaming and I like had no idea what was going on. And the first words of her of, out of her mouth when we locked eyes were, don't move. And I looked to my left and sure enough, there was a huge rattlesnake coiled up next to me about about three feet away. Um, so over the next 20 minutes, I just had a standoff with this big old snake. And uh, she tried to, you know, like throw rocks at it, all this kind of stuff. Eventually, it slithered off and uh, I was Rattlesnake. <laughs> kind of the perfect name for me. And um, I've, I've told that story to hundreds of thru-hikers since. I love it. Now, for those listening, both Matt and I have big smiles on her face. And I would guess you recall that story with great relish, not horror. Totally. Yeah, it was yeah. <laughs> I look I look back on it fondly. It's it's like part of my identity yeah. now. So that um those who are listening, that's the arena you've entered into. We uh, Matt and I both and many, many others chose to put ourselves in an environment where every day, not just the out of the ordinary, but every day something extraordinary happens. Yeah. And what I've noticed too is that I have amazing recall for that time. Like I could tell you what I did on on almost every day of my through hike, which I find utterly fascinating from like a memory standpoint. I say the same thing, Matt. So our, our through hike's now 16 years ago. I'm, I'm 71 years old. I could sit here today 
and tell you one story, if not multiple stories, for every one of the 155 days we were out there. And what other period in your life can you do that for? Right. I haven't come across any yet. <laughs> so I wanted to kind of revisit maybe uh, Scout 1.0 and Scout 2.0 briefly and kind of just understand your backstory and and how you got into um, through hiking in the first place and and how it's become such a huge part of your life. Well, if you were to go back to uh, Little Scout, to Little Barney, uh, seven, eight, nine, ten years old, uh, you never would have predicted this to be a person who A, would be a backpacker, and B, would be a long-distance backpacker. Uh, my parents were not campers at all. I recall the one time I went camping overnight with my father at age six, and my parents have camped out five times in their lifetime. And God bless them, they're 98 and 92 today. Um, and each time they said, that's our last time. But what they did is they took me to Boy Scout meetings. And there at age 13, I went on my first, um, uh, first 50 miler. I was, I'd always been the littlest, littlest boy in my class, which is hard on a boy. I weighed, I think, 79 pounds. My pack weighed half my weight. They promised the sunshine. It rained every day that week in the high Sierra. There was something called a pineapple express that was roaring through. And I fell in love with it. I mean, here, animals weren't behind bars. The stuff I would see in the TV, I am living it. I am living it. And my size no longer mattered. As long as I was keeping up, I was the same as the big boys. And that was magical. It was just magical. Uh, which also led probably to Scout 1.0, which was... Um, um, one thing is growing up is I hope someday I'd be a counselor. Uh, I had a YMCA uh, camp, uh, day camp experience. I thought that was great. And maybe someday I could be a counselor. And I did, uh, uh, some, um, uh, uh, weeks long, um, summer camp experience was a counselor, uh, got to be, uh, uh, in college was a unit head. And then in, in between my junior and senior years, I directed a summer camp in West Virginia, which is its own story. I was forced very severe asthmatics, eight weeks that they're there. And we could talk the whole time about that, but we won't right now. Uh, but that led to the following year, landing position as camp director in uh, about two miles off the Pacific Crest Trail near Wrightwood in the San Gabriel Mountains above Los Angeles. Every New Year's Day when you see the Rose Parade and those mountains right behind there, they're looking so glorious. Uh, and it's always sunny that day. And people move out, they get in their cars, they move out. Uh, those are the San Gabriel Mountains. And I lived at a, I landed a job at the summer camp. It was for inner city kids, uh, 72 to 75. Spend the um, uh, winter time uh, raising money and hiring staff. And then we'd uh, 110 campers uh, a week for 10, 12 weeks of summer. We take these kids out there who um, from East Los Angeles, East Los and uh, South Los Angeles, Watts. Um, and many of them, if they saw each other at home, Matt, one of them was in deep trouble because they were in the wrong neighborhood. But here at All Nations Camp, you're in our turf. And you know what? The rules in our turf are we're nice to each other. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner come on time. And it was a really neat experience. We hired a lot of staff um, from, uh, from the neighborhoods. Uh, last year, a young woman named Sandy Mann um, uh, came on as a counselor. And she, ah, oh, right, Sandy Camp. She's in the next room. Uh, <laughs> and uh, we're now married 45 years. Amazing. And I understand you were uh, a lawyer for 
for much of your life as well? Yeah. Went off to law school and then practiced for just over 25 years, small for Herman San Diego. Uh, and it's not unusual these days. I'll get the question, what kind of lawyer you were? I won't ask that. No, do. <laughs> okay. What kind of lawyer were you? Are you ready for a half hour answer on trail? We got time. Uh, was I was a kind lawyer. And you don't usually see those two words side by side. It was actually the challenge of my career. I was a litigator, uh, business and real estate. People like fighting about both those things all too much. And the challenge was both zealously representing my client and a finding a way to still treat people the way I would want to be treated. And when they are retired, which is now 12 years ago, um, late 50s, my partner of 20 some odd years called and he's looking for, it was a Friday, he's looking for some words of wisdom, late May, Friday, his name's Steve. He said, yo, Barney, you know, what are you thinking today? And when I told him, it was Steve, I have not thought of it once. Today at two o'clock is my first deadline for Backpacker Magazine which was the truth. And I haven't looked back from that. You know, I've gotten published many times in Backpacker, other sources, have three books out now. I'm a real lucky guy. Yeah. I mean, you said you've spent 12 years of your life as an author. When did you really kind of gravitate towards writing as a potential career path? How old are you, Matt? I am 29. 29. Okay. Yeah. I was 28, 29. My first job out of um, law school was as a, um, a law clerk bailiff. So if you've ever been to court and you often will see a uh, armed sheriff in the courtroom um, in um, uh, the second most uh, populous county in Oregon, which was Lane County, they had eight superior court judges. And you had the option of having either an armed, an armed sheriff in there as your bailiff, or you could hire a law student fresh out and you'd have a law clerk bailiff. And that's what I did for a year. Um, those of you who watch um, you know, law programs say, oh, it's, everything's riveting. It must be really exciting. 90% of law is boring. 90% of what happens in courtroom is boring. But 5 10% of the time, it literally, as if it felt as if the roof opens and some societal problem is right there, smacked up in front of me, the judge, or the judge and the jury. And I had problems describing that for people. So one day, I literally sat down, opened up a notebook, and did what I had started doing, what I had thought was magic. Always been a very avid reader. And to me, it was magical. Someone could write words on a page, and there's nothing more I want to do except turn the page, turn the page, turn the page. And I started writing the next, you know, I'm 20, 20 years old. I started writing the next great American novel. Of course, it was set in a courtroom. Um, I was on fire, finished it in nine months. And then I spent three years trying to get, get it published. Uh, uh, set aside my law degree. Uh, we live like church mice. Um, um, and uh, I had a lot of interest. In fact, I'm looking up, I have a shelf where I have like 25 rejection letters, including a, a two-page single space from the major house and how they wanted to have it rewritten. I wasn't ready to do that. And then we started having kids. And it was time to get back on and dust off my law degree and went back to law career. So at the tail end of the law career, um, um, that desire had always remained within me. And I started. I started again. Comes full circle. Yeah. 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 As an English major, I have to ask you about um, some of your influences as a writer. I like people, especially people I refer to as great storytellers. Uh, and I think the great storytellers of the last you know, 50, 60, 70 years are the um, uh, John Irving. Yep. Uh, Cider House Rules. Um, 
you know, everyone, you know, they say as best as the world according to Garp, but I think it's a prayer to Owen Meany. Right. I love that book. Yeah. And then, um, um, uh, Prince of Tides. Um, oh God, who's Prince of Tides by? I can't do it. So you get to be 71 and that happens. You get to be 71, you order something on Amazon, Matt, comes three days later, you go, oh my gosh, what's this? And you get gifts. So there's a fun side to it too. Inside too. Uh, Leonorus, Herman Wook, again, these are, just, these, these are great novelistic storytellers. They tell a great story. They draw you in. Um, yeah. yeah, I think like this is a good segue into uh, one of the books I have right by me, uh, Journeys North, which you wrote in, or you published in 2020, and it kind of tells the story of uh, several thru-hikers you met during your own thru-hike in uh, 2007. Um, and I'm wondering if you can kind of, I know it's kind of impossible to do this, but maybe provide a brief synopsis of, of your hike and uh, what inspired you to um, write a book like this. So some have said it's a uh, wild meets the breakfast club. That's um, apt. Yeah. So there are many, many first person memoirs out there about their trail experiences. Some of them are very, very good. And of course, a few you know, uh, reached a stellar heights of popularity, say, such as Wild. Yeah. I, I wanted to ask you about Wild really quick. Okay. Um, so what did the experience of like hosting hikers, how did that change after Wild was published from your perspective? Because I know that like I talked to so many people when I was on trail and they're like, yeah, I read Wild by Cheryl Strayed and I immediately got all my backpacking gear together and headed for San Diego. So t- two things. One, uh, whereas the PCT's numbers of through hikers have been increasing arithmetically at a at a slow at a steady rate, are your um, maybe just shy of three hundred started attention through hiking by five six seven years later it had uh, inched its way up to six seven hundred eight hundred maybe a thousand. Then the movie comes out and the book comes out and increases exponentially very quickly up to three thousand a year. And these days I think they're issuing forty five hundred permits to throughs. South enough. So one increased numbers, and the other a visceral sort of gut change was the percent—not just the raw numbers, but the percentage of people who had caught the dream. I want to do this, and had no experience underneath it. Yeah, increased. No experience. They have they have quit their job, sold their car, put their put their goods in a storage, told all their friends, and they have not slept out on the ground overnight ever before. Yeah, incredible. I I met a ton of people that had no backpacking experience and i i was kind of blown away but also like super impressed because a lot of them that i met like made made it all the way to canada uh we have people at the house you know we've seen seven thousand people over years and someone will get they got to say all right scout can you tell who's going to make it or not and the reason why they're afraid of asking the question is they know is they think oh he's he's right now judging if he thinks i'm going to make it or not and the answer is no not all I've seen people in most god awful equipment with 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 uh, with extreme levels of experience, and they find their way. They find their way and become excellent hikers. Zelzen, uh, Zelzen from Mexico, first um, uh, uh, first uh, Mexican woman through hiker, twenty seventeen, came to our house, spoke next to no English. Her equipment was so outrageously out of, uh, that we actually made in a nice way a project of her. We wanted her to have a fighting chance and wanted her to go out with a modicum of safety. 
myself, Rolling Thunder, who was there. We really, um, uh, even though there's 40 other people staying at nights, we spent uh, we, uh, uh, some real good time with her. Zones is, is now a triple crowner. She is the face of trip of uh, through hiking in um, uh, Mexico. She's a good interview, by the way, too. And if you ever want an introduction, be happy to do that. And she's uh, she is working right now. Um, I don't think it's a secret anymore on founding Mexico's first long distance trail. That's incredible. Yeah, I'll I'll definitely put her on my list. Um, okay, so before I derailed us, we were talking about um, your 2007 through hike, and I'm curious about what that experience was like because that kind of predates all of the technology that a lot of folks, including myself, uh, have used today in terms of, you know, various navigation apps and stuff like that. Um, give me kind of a, a rundown of, of your 2007 hike. Oh, one big announcement that occurred that summer, we, we come out and uh, um, uh, we came out to Mammoth, 900 miles up the trail. It's early July. And one big piece of news that came out was um, Apple announced the first <laughs> the first iPhone ever. It was an era in which you were embarrassed. You wouldn't let anyone know if you were carrying your cell phone on the trail. You didn't want people to know, look down at you. It was an era where all of us, all of us took the three, the 1100 pages of the three volume Pacific Crest Trail guidebook and we tore them up. And that's what we used for mapping. Um, it was an era in which um, 115th, 120th, the, uh, the amount of people were out on the trail, which created things very different. Um, and um, yeah, the people, uh, fewer, women, uh, fewer women, fewer couples, fewer, fewer pairs during the time. Of the 300-ish or so people that started start the Tension 2 hike, there were only 20 couples. And, and we thought ours was a big year for, uh, 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 for solo women. And I think I think it it was as high as maybe one out of five, and these days it's 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 maybe not quite fifty fifty, but it's it's getting close to that. Yeah, so some big um, uh, some big changes lately. Uh, uh, there used to be a network when the numbers were lower, and it could be sustained. More of a network of homes along the way, seven eight uh, homes people you could stay in, and those are gone because numbers completely outstripped. Uh, uh, a private individual from reaching their own pocketbook and doing this sort of thing. Yeah. What was uh, the, the prevalence of trail angels and trail magic back then? Because when I, when I hiked, I mean, you, you couldn't go 150 miles without finding a cooler full of soda or something like that. Or trail, mag cash. trail magic, much, much less. That is you know, it's someone who's at, at a trailhead and they've set up for the day or they're coming back every other day and they come out on the weekends. That was much, much less. Uh, but what was more was um, um, every few hundred, few hundred miles there'd be a trail angel. You know, I could go up to uh, someone who was opening their house and you know, they'd have uh, north of Sierra Nevada, you're talking about probably only 100, 120 people who are passing through over the course and now it's spread out over a two, three months. Um, you know, and these days just couldn't handle it. Uh, the last of the big ones, the Dinsmores and the Softleys uh, and the Andersons, I guess Dinsmore stopped four years ago and the other two, three years ago. And we were pretty much, Fro and I were the only ones left standing. And we're just crazy. So <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't go yeah. that far. I think what you yeah. guys do is incredible. And I think 
you make the trail possible for so many people. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I I talked to countless number of folks that that stayed with you and and got to hear your your famous uh, post dinner speech, uh, which I'm hoping you can kind of give me some some uh, takeaways from at some point. Yeah, I mean, I think how do you think about uh, the future of the PCT? Whoa, okay. Well, um, can we table that for a moment? Yeah. <laughs> Taylor, let's go back to the book. Okay. Why I wrote it. Um, as you and I talked before, literally every day, every day, some small miracle happens in front of you, person, place, thing. And I heard stories out there because we talked to each other differently, uh, backstories, what people were carrying that was so much heavier than their packs out there. And then the things that happened to us, which were literally astonishing. And what I wanted to do was come back and write so that folks like you and folks who've been out there any period of time say, yeah, Scout, you caught it. And equally, if not more important, right, so that those who never go out, I used to say Joe and Josephine uh, Couch Potato, could feel what it's like for a moment to be out in the nat. It's the nastiest of weather. It's howling outside. You have taken refuge in a pit toilet outhouse. There is the pit toilet throne a few feet away from you. You're huddled in a corner. You are, your hands are, are, are over your little tiny alcohol stove. You're cooking dinner. You're wearing every stitch of clothing that you have. And you know what? You are happy. And to feel that and to feel what that's like. Uh, and I wanted to tell um, some of the best friends out there had just amazing uh, life survival stories. And I wanted to share that. Um, I first thought the book would have to be a fiction. Is that Blazer? Blazer, you, <laughs> she never let me tell her story, her background. You got to be kidding me. Um, things that um, her and others, you know, uh, I was the. Uh, third, fourth, fifth person they've ever told in their life and things that I shared. And then one day, uh, I was actually had already decided I was going to write a la historical fiction-ish, meaning that the people in the foreground would be doppelgangers. They'd be fictional. And similar things would happen to them that, say, happened on the trail. Uh, but the, And the background would be, all, be real and real people. Frodo, my wife, said, you know, you've made an assumption. You need to ask Blazer. And so one day I did. I can still picture us from Washington, D.C., which is where she was living. It's a cold, blustery day. We're walking along the sidewalk, two o'clock, and we're all bundled up. And I turned to her, and she knew I was working in a book. This was really important to me. And I said, Blazer, you wouldn't want me to write about you, would you? <laughs> I hear you laughing, Matt, because you're a person, you're an English major, you're a person who knows words. And I have stated a question, anticipating by the nature of the question, the answer would be no. Right. Yeah. Not. And instead, she turned to me and said, direct quote, she said, Scout, I trust you. It would be okay. And we spent the next 45 minutes sitting and discussing what that really meant. As I do write with care, but what can't happen is everything's open season. Three quarters from a year from now, uh, two years from now, say, oh, Scout, everything but this one slice and this little piece over here. If, if we're going on this path and God bless her, Blazer stayed true. Uh, which also meant I had to be equally brave. And my wife had to be brave too, <laughs> sort of go along with it. Um, 
uh, had a, a good friend who didn't know all our background um, and just saw us today. And people see a 45-year couple who consider each other soulmates. I'm lucky I get to go to bed with this woman who uh, still takes my breath away every night, uh, who I co-parented with. Early in our marriage, uh, three kids already, we had not just a rough spot, a very visible, ugly rough spot. That's what it was. And a friend told me who had read the book and know, thought he knew us very well. And he says, you know, my, my, my wife heard me all of a sudden like shout scream from the other room. And I said, no, how is that possible? Because in the book on trail I'd just done was a blazer and I found ourselves in a magical space where she told me some of her deepest truths. And I had to, uh, I'd actually prime the pump, if you will, uh, by telling her some of mine. And one of them was starting with uh, Blazer. Do you know for three years, uh, Frodo and I were separated and went from there. What do you think it is about life on the trail that allows people to be so vulnerable with like complete strangers? Well, because we are vulnerable, physically vulnerable. For one, for, for one thing, we have, instead of you and I right now are sitting in places where you know, the temperature is within five, five degrees of each other entire day long. And it's going to be dry. And we got a refrigerator. And we have all this stuff around us. And instead, we have chosen to walk out in an environment where usually only twice a day is the temperature just right, sometime in the morning going up, sometimes afternoon, where we'd be walking 24 hours in rain, and not just rain, but freezing rain, uh, 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 soul-churning rain or conditions, where our resources don't consist of a whole apartments or house full of goods, with Walmart just down, you know, five minutes drive away, and Amazon at our fingertips. Our resources, the entire world of our resources, is maybe the 10 pounds of, of uh, food and water, and the uh, uh, depending on how you pack, the, the, the 10 to 20 pounds worth of gear that you got on your back. And that's our resource. So we're already uh, vulnerable. But as uh, has been written about recently, I see a lot more, is the physical act of being nature changes us. And we tend to, it's a natural tendency to be more open. One of the reasons why I continue to go back to a long trail is I see someone out there. I was walking along, you and I never met, and I see you off in the distance, and either I'm overtaking you or I'm coming at you, whatever it is. I already know this person would give me the shirt off his back or off her back. You know, downtown, hopefully if downtown New York, I'm walking, oh, I hope this person isn't going <laughs> to knock me down, <laughs> push me out of the way. So we have that going on too. And we do talk to each other differently. Yeah. We have no idea what the other does. I mean, how many people did you actually talk about? What did you do in the city? You know, what's your job? It wasn't no. relevant. It wasn't relevant. Yeah. And we start talking about intimate things. I would have once a day, once every day, uh, a level of conversation that I might have with the best friend once in the city. Um, I also, I like to listen and ask questions. And um, uh, on the trail, I, I loved hearing you know, people would, would start in their stories. I just loved hearing them. It's the most amazing stories would pour out from people. So what was the process of like researching the characters in your book after you completed the through hike? Uh, everyone in the book I've interviewed, uh, the principals, the four others aside from, uh, from my wife and I, multiple times. Uh, a number of them, it's funny, if I'm around them, I still am. I'm still close to them. Around them, I hear them start telling a story. 
oftentimes realized I know the story as well, if not better than they did. I was given access to journals, um, to to photographs. Uh, would interview um, other people in their life. Uh, blazer around at one incident. She um, she works in a pizza rest- restaurant, and one of the seminal events. Uh, um, she 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 had an, an, an absent and also troubled father, very much so. Won't go into there. But the pizza restaurant owner, she worked at age 16, 17, 18, became like a father to her. And that sort of figure really encouraged her. And school was there, would show up at her athletic events, as well as, as, well as the other kids he hired in his pizza restaurant. Uh, but she, one night, was getting ready to drive off to take a pizza to uh, uh, 9.30 at night. They're about closing. And she got actually three pizzas. And one of his, um, uh, uh, his name was Don, one of Don's, uh, in this small town in Pennsylvania, was your pizzas always got there warm. And she's got her car parked right out in front. There's two little tables and a huge plate glass window. She wasn't ever that good of a driver. She gets in the car, uh, puts it into reverse, backs up a foot or two, strikes the table, and she blows out the window. Blow, I mean, it, it explodes. Don's in the room. And he runs out and starts jumping, small man, large around the middle, but small man, jumping and down yelling, and she drives off, thinking, I've lost this job. I've lost Don. And she comes back a half hour later, and he's still standing out front. (laughs) And he looks at her and says, why did you drive off? (laughs) Didn't you see me? And she says, I knew my job was over. But I know how important it was to you. These pizzas would be delivered hot. And so that's what I did. Of course, he didn't fire her. She stayed on and was his best employee. Um, and I interviewed Don because uh, I won't reveal the incident, but um, something she told me about when she was 14 years old, that after her mother and a doctor, I was the next person to know, took place at a local park there. And um, Don was the one that told me that that was the park that when he was growing up in that small town, his parents wouldn't allow him to ever go to. And I'd started with that story and ended up with the big Don story of the uh, of blowing out the window. These people had such rich, wonderful stories. And I get to take you and I get to take others into them and also into our stories. Yeah. I mean, it really feels like being a fly on the wall, which I think is a testament to your ability to tell a story. What would you can kind of consider the climax of the book without giving it away? Oh, it's, the, the climax is the end. The climax is the beginning. It begins on the Frodo's birthday, the introduction, Frodo's birthday, the day we thought we would finish. Almost always, every year, you are safe to finish the PCT, Pacific Crest Trail, by October 15th. Snows will not come that early. Uh, but soon thereafter, trail shuts down. Snow is deep enough. You don't go out, period, end of story. It's too deep. You are too far away in wilderness. Um, and for every reason you can think of, um, you don't go on. There's a reason why only uh, uh, one pair of people have ever through hiked the Pacific Crest Trail in winter. And that the only other people that tried uh, both died after, uh, after 300 miles. Um, October 2nd, it has been snowing for uh, three days. Incredibly high. We got pushed back once. We made it to uh, um, uh, uh, 
uh, number of miles north of Rainy Pass, first big pass, get pushed back. We go and lick our wounds and go back out again. And we are, um, that morning, we knew this was the day. All we, need, we needed two nights and three days with a hike and 60 miles. You know this because you were there of, uh, of weather just to get through. We had formed these people. We'd all hiked uh, Frodo and I in a pair. And everyone else hiked singly. You make your own decisions. And we agreed to form a group of 10. And we would hike together. Always the lead person in front of the back person. Uh, we had uh, sat down and assessed our gear. We'd formed a pairs because people in those conditions, they stop. They stop drinking, they don't admit to being pain, and you need a buddy who's going to be looking out for you and then informing the others. We need to look out for this and that. Uh, we've, uh, we were carrying three different sets of maps. This was paper maps country, folks. Um, October 2nd dawns. We are making figure eights in about eight inches of new snow, and it is snowing, and we have 2,000 feet to climb up. Myself, Frodo, Blazer, Chigger. It's October 2nd. Blazer pipes up. Happy birthday, Frodo. We were 30 years married at the time. We had never forgotten her birthday for both of us had forgotten her birthday that morning. And then Blazer further says, what do you want for your birthday? And here's the words that came out of Frodo's mouth. And the words were, I want to get out of the day alive. Three days later, Seattle King TV lit up with three through hikers missing. Start at midnight. Search parties are going out. On the internet, chatter lit up. There was an internet forum, and people were saying, uh, oh my God, uh, pray for these people. Uh, uh, search and rescue were, were pinging on. I'm going out to join the search. 60 search and rescuers, two helicopters were heading out the next morning. But Matt, they weren't looking for us. They were looking for another hiker, Nadine, one of our six. So that's how it begins. And that's about the last 25% of the book, is how we and others go out again, push to the edge, go out again, push the edge, and maybe some of us get through and some of us don't. Gives me chills. So after you finished the thru-hike, did you kind of experience any uh, post-hike blues? Okay, so we're, we're going to tell, we're going to talk about the dark underside of a long distance hike, huh? Yeah. I mean, I think it's like, <laughs> I went through it myself and it's, it's something that I don't think it's talked about enough. No, I actually, I wrote a, um, when I'm on trail or a, a long trail, uh, I do a journal entry every day. And ever since the PCT and the Appalachian trail and also uh, CDT doing that entry, whether it's 300, 600 words a day, and it's not just, oh, I saw this train, that tree. It's stories and it's people and it's, uh, it's the real stuff. Um, that is, uh, uh, doing that is as important to me as my feet. And in saying that, I just lost track of your question. Were you popping at me again? Or just oh, yeah. Uh, no, just, uh, uh, oh, post after trail depression. Yeah. So, uh, so afterwards I did some uh, post trail entries and one of them was just about that. And the picture I had alongside it was an Apollo capsule coming back in the atmosphere and all the fiery as it re-enters re-entry, back to Earth yeah. home. Re-entry, it's giving off all these flames and bouncing around. Um, and yeah, a lot of people do experience post-trail depression. It took me a month to shave off my five-month beard. I wouldn't take my my license and credit card out, out of my uh, little baggy wallet for a month. Uh, and a lot of people do. You have just experienced 
five months, some of the most intense living you'll ever live in your life. And to come back to mundanish and ordinary, uh, I, you were a, what I call a singleton. You, you started by yourself and you went home yourself. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I ended up hiking with a friend I met on trail for over 2000 miles, but, um, yeah, I went into it by myself and, and finished yeah. pretty much solo. So here's what happened when you came home. Your best and closest friends would give you maybe three, four, five minutes. And then they'd want to do what's normal part of normal conversation. It's their turn to tell their story. Or they would ask you, what was the best thing out there? And what they're asking you, you have in your pocket now, you have the Hope Diamond, 58 facets that glows and is as precious and as unique as that thing is. And that's how you feel about it. And they just ask, ask you to, would you show me a little peek in your pocket and, and uh, uh, tape over the other 57 facets? So we come home, um, uh, not being able to talk about it and experience in the same way. And, and, and we're forced, we are forced to spend natural life. We have to bottle it up and find a way to get back into some semblance of normal life. And it is. People often experience a post-real depression. My sister, I was uh, close with her, I was talking about, and she says, you know, you sound like you're grieving. And that was exactly it. Bingo. Yeah. Bingo. I have memories of uh when i got back to san francisco which is where i live now uh you know when you're on trail and, and you pass uh you know hikers hiking south you say hi you know may, you maybe stop and 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 chat a little bit i was like doing that to people on the street and they were like thinking i was completely out of my mind just going like hey to like random strangers just because like that is the kind of like relationship you have with strangers on trail and over the years, I've done a lot of interviewing of people, both for the book and for articles and such. And when I talk to someone who's no longer since trail, um, you know, the majority, vast majority were singletons. They are so thirsty to talk and tell their stories. And if someone wants to hear and they know um, the person hearing is hearing them through the lens of, yeah, I know what it's like. Yeah. Um, did through hiking kind of change how you consumed things and how you thought about possessions? Uh, I guess this question is is based out of my own experience. I think I after through hiking, I was like, why do I have all this stuff that I don't use on a daily basis? Like this is this doesn't serve a purpose. Like, why do I have it? So I reduced a lot of my possessions because uh, I was stuck in that mentality. And I'm wondering if if uh, if that applied to you. Yeah, probably the biggest way, or one big way, every time I go into a supermarket, I still feel like a deer in the headlights. There is such, there is not, I, uh, I don't take out this you know, food bag that's not even, that's, that's a fraction the size of a supermarket food bag. And that's my entirety of food for the next few days, and my choices are there. And so I walk in this place lined with shelves, and, and, and it feels like an infinite amount of choices. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, so I do want to revisit a question that I, I probably asked a bit prematurely earlier uh, about the future of the PCT. Because um, I know that you guys took a break from hosting hikers during the pandemic. And I'm wondering uh, where you think through hiking culture is going and, and what you envision as, you know, the next three to four years of the PCT looking like. So, um, 
These are questions I think about a lot and have actually for a number of years. Uh, the year after I got off the trail, um, I realized when I was on it that it's a minor miracle in the 21st century that we, being we the United States, have a wilderness path stretching through the most populous state in the country and Oregon and Washington. And there must be people, people working in this. This didn't just happen. And that this literally, the trail, it's, connect, it, it's being connected, a continuous route. Um, it doesn't end in a generation, get wiped on a generation, it really can be wiped out overnight. So I was, uh, uh, I ended up being on the board of the PCTA within a year, and since that time, continues to PCTA, Cognitive Trail Coalition Board, and these days, um, there is a national umbrella group for all 30 congressionally designated National Scenic and Historic Trails um, that's called the Partnership for the National Trail System, and I serve as its board president. So these questions, both uh, in micro and macro ways, we look at it often. Um, as much difference as there is, say, between 2007 and today, number of people, uh, navigation, uh, connectivity. You can't see it, folks. I'm uh, holding up my, uh, my cell phone, which I'm no longer embarrassed to have out there. <laughs> Everyone does. You know, they're almost, uh, they almost are attached to the hip. Um, these are still iconic experiences. And I don't think that's going to change, even though the number of people doing them has increased. Um, uh, doing a walkabout like that will still remain uh, cosmic. There's a lot of effort being put into preserving uh, these, time, money, and effort. And we should never go complacent, but these are, Pacific Crest Trail in particular, it's pretty darn well protected. Yeah, it is still uh, um, in a percent, five percent. What's the number? I think it's ten percent. Ten percent of the PCT remains on private on private property. I think that's number day. And in 1936, the father of Pacific Crest Trail uh, bragged at one point that a uh, uh, ninety percent of Pacific Crest Trail, as he had mapped it out, is on is on public property. So that hasn't changed much, but the amount of effort. The easements we have over the other, the size of the Pacific Crest Trail Association. Uh, there's a lot of good things in place. Uh, one example in a, ah, so one story I like to tell when I'm talking to people about the, um, the importance of having an organization such as Pacific Crest Trail. And any folks, if, uh, uh, if you love trails in the outdoors, uh, whether it's local, whether it's regional, whether it's uh, Appalachian Trail Conservancy or CDTC, Colorado Trail Coalition or PCTA, uh, belong to one of these things. Become a member. Uh, they tend to do really well through money. Into money. A through hiker had finished the Pacific Crest Trail, and he wrote a letter to the uh, Pacific Crest Trail Association. And the letter began: "I have just finished through hiking the Pacific Crest Trail, and I feel a quiet sense of rage. I saw blowdowns. I saw wiped out sections of trails." I saw a trail overgrown. It looks to me like no one cares. Matt, the year was 1992. I've seen the records in that year. Some 5,000 volunteer trail maintenance hours were being put down by, uh, by uh, volunteers in the trail. And there are not folks in Forest Service, Smokey the Bear's Hats. There haven't been all but for a long time. 
it comes, it's, it's private sector uh, trained volunteers uh, with a lot of agency help, but not this last year, uh, somewhere or the last, the last non-COVID year, over 200,000, over 200,000 volunteer trail maintenance hours were put down the trail. People, I'll bet when you finish the trail, um, if you would compare your thoughts beginning and you, my sense is you largely thought, this is a resource that's pretty darn well taken care of. It's pretty darn well signed. And it feels like to me that people really care about. Did, did, did you feel that way? Yeah. I mean, it was such a pleasurable experience, like having confidence and knowing where I was going, even without like the technology because of how well the trail was maintained. Well, I next go forward in answering the question is we cannot grow complacent. We cannot. That literally uh, a trail can disappear overnight. One big flood, 2003 big flood, and cl- uh, 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 blew out all the bridges in Washington uh, over 45 miles. Um, uh, f- there were 453 major blowdowns because we hiked through it, you know, <laughs> as they're supposed to. Uh, they didn't have a closure. They just had a strongly world worded handwritten note in the Forest Service saying, we, we really encourage you. There's an active search going on in this area. Don't take it. We took it because we talked to people who had just gone through. And we made a knowing, a knowing and wise decision. But we also counted the blowdowns. Um, you know, my hope is, is there'll be a, uh, 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 a um, podcast interviewer or whatever forum podcasts are 50 years from now, interviewing someone such as myself. And they'll also still be talking about this iconic resource and experience of Pacific Crest Trail. And it happens if we all do our part. I think that is a perfect note to end on. Barney, Scout, uh, thanks for chatting with me today. You bet. Really appreciate that. You have a great day. That's it for this edition of Off the Couch. Thanks to Barney for the conversation. Thanks to Justin Bob for producing this episode. And from everyone here at Blister, please take good care of yourself. Keep moving forward. And we'll talk to you again next week.